0: Justices may it please the court My name is Dudum Timunye from Timunye Lluyo Attorneys. I am appearing for the applicant in case number CCT 143 Thank you <coughs> Good morning Justices and may it please the court My name is Mark Cook I appear for the applicant in case number 171 Thank you Justices, may it please the court. Kosi Lekabe is my name, the State Attorney Johannesburg. I appear on behalf of the first respondent in CCT 143 of 2015, as well as for the first respondent in CCT 171 of 2015. Thank you. May it please the court, Justices. I'm Kei Chwe from the State Attorney Pretoria. I'm appearing on behalf of the second respondent in both cases. Here's the court, please. Thank you. Please the court, Justices. My name is Advocate Mwiboni Khadja. I appear on behalf of the third respondent in the case number CCT 171. Thank you, ma'am. May it please the Court, Chief Justices, good morning. I appear on behalf of the third respondent in case number CCT 143 of 2015 and uh, on behalf of the fourth respondent in case number 171 of 2015, as the Court pleases. Them. Thank you. Justices, may it please the Court, I appear on behalf of the Amicus Curiae in both matters. This is a unanimous judgment that I have written concurred in by Deputy Chief Justice Moseneke, Justices Busiello, Cameron, Froneman, Jafta, Kampepe, Madlanga, Mthantla, Nkabinde, and Zondo. It deals with issues of monumental importance to the people of this country and to the well-being of our constitutional democracy. The case provides profound lessons on the nature of and the wisdom behind the architectural design of our constitutional democracy, with special emphasis on the crucial role that separation of powers and the distribution thereof among co-equal branches of government plays in our democracy. It reminds and assures us that ours is a genuine and vibrant constitutional democracy, undoubtedly capable of self-correction and self-preservation through its independent free arms of state, duly supported by our Chapter 9 institutions, whose individual and collective mandate is essentially to strengthen our constitutional democracy. Through this case, We, the people, are also forced to appreciate now more than ever before the collective wisdom of the drafters of our Constitution in ensuring that, and I quote, there is separation of powers between the the legislature, the executive, and the judiciary with appropriate checks and balances to ensure accountability, responsiveness, and openness. Additionally, one of the crucial elements of our constitutional vision is to make a decisive break from the unchecked abuse of state power and resources that was virtually institutionalized during the apartheid era. To achieve this goal, we, the people of South Africa, adopted accountability, the rule of law, and the supremacy of the Constitution, as values of our constitutional democracy. For this reason, public office bearers ignore their constitutional obligations at their peril. This is so because constitutionalism, accountability, and the rule of law constitute the sharp and mighty sword that stands ready to chop the ugly head of impunity of its stiffened neck. It is against this backdrop that the following remarks must be understood, and I quote, certain values in the Constitution have been designated as foundational to our democracy. This in turn means that as pillar stones of this democracy, they must be observed scrupulously. If these values are not observed and their precepts not carried out conscientiously, we have a recipe for a constitutional crisis of great magnitude. In a state predicated on a desire to maintain the rule of law, it is imperative that one and all should be driven by a moral obligation to ensure the continued survival of our democracy. Close quote. And the role of these foundational values in helping to strengthen and sustain our constitutional democracy sits at the heart of this application. And this is how the Nkandla saga all started. Several South Africans, including a Member of Parliament, lodged complaints with the Public Protector concerning aspects of the security upgrades that were being effected at the President's Nkandla private residence. These complaints triggered a fairly extensive investigation by the Public Protector into the Nganda project. The Public Protector concluded that several improvements like the kettle crawl, chicken run, visitor center, amphitheater, and the swimming pool were non-security features. Since the State was under an obligation to implement only security-related upgrades at the President's private residence, Any installation that had nothing to do with the President's security was regarded as an undue benefit to him and his family that he had to pay for. Having arrived at the conclusion that the President and his family were unduly enriched as a result of the non-security features, the Public Protector took remedial action against him in terms of Section 182.1c of the Constitution. The remedial action taken reads, the president is to take steps with the assistance of the national treasury and the SAPs to determine the reasonable costs of the measures implemented by the Department of Public Works at his private residence that do not relate to security and which include the Vista Centre, the amphitheatre, the kettle crawl, and the chicken run and the swimming pool. Pay a reasonable percentage of the cost of the measures as determined. With the assistance of the National Treasury also considering the Department of Public Works apportionment document. Reprimand the ministers involved for the appalling manner in which the Nkandla project was handled and state funds were abused. Report to the National Assembly on his comments and actions on this report within 14 days. That is the end of it. Consistent with this directive, the President submitted his response to the National Assembly within 14 days of receiving the report. It was followed by yet another response about five months later. For its part, the National Assembly set up two ad hoc committees comprising its members to examine the Public Protector's report as well as other reports, including the one compiled also at its instance by the Minister of Police After endorsing the report by the Minister exonerating the President from liability and a report to the same effect by its last ad hoc committee, the National Assembly resolved to absolve the president of all liability. Consequently, the President did not comply with the remedial action taken by the Public Protector. Dissatisfied with this, the Economic Freedom Fighters launched this application. It, in effect, asked for an order affirming the legally binding effect of the Public Protector's remedial action, directing the President to comply with the Public Protector's remedial action, and declaring that both the President and the National Assembly acted in breach of their constitutional obligations. The Democratic Alliance launched a similar application in the Western Cape Division of the High Court, Cape Town, and subsequently, to this court, conditional upon the EFF's application being heard by this court. It is fitting to mention at this early stage that eight days before this matter was heard, the President circulated a draft order to this court and to the parties. After some parties had expressed views on aspects of that draft, a revised version was circulated on the day of the hearing. The essence of both draft orders is that those aspects of the Public Protector's remedial measures, still capable of enforcement, would be fully complied with. As for costs, the President proposed that they be reserved for future determination. It needs to be said that the EFF asked this Court to entertain this application in terms of its constitutionally allocated exclusive jurisdiction that this court enjoys the exclusive jurisdiction to decide the alleged failure by the President to fulfill his constitutional obligations ought not to be surprising, considering the magnitude and vital importance of his responsibilities. The President is the head of state and head of the National Executive. His is indeed the highest calling to the highest office in the land. He is the first citizen of this country and occupies a position indispensable for the effective governance of our democratic country. Only upon him has the constitutional obligation to uphold, defend, and respect the Constitution as the supreme law of the Republic been expressly imposed. The promotion of national unity and reconciliation falls squarely on his shoulders. As does the maintenance of orderliness, peace, stability, and devotion to the well-being of the Republic and all of its people. Whoever and whatever poses a threat to our sovereignty, peace, and prosperity, he must fight. To him is the executive authority of the entire Republic primarily entrusted. He initiates and gives the final stamp of approval to all national legislation, and almost all key role players in the realization of our constitutional vision and the aspirations of all our people are appointed and may ultimately be removed by him. Unsurprisingly, the nation pins its hope on him to steer the country in the right direction and accelerate our journey towards a peaceful, just, and prosperous destination that all other progress-driven nations strive towards on a daily basis. He is a constitutional being by design, a national pathfinder, the quintessential commander-in-chief of state affairs and the personification of this nation's constitutional project. The president is required to promise solemnly and sincerely to always connect with the true dictates of his conscience in the execution of his duties. This he is required to do with all his strength, all his talents, and to the best of his knowledge and abilities. And, but for the Deputy President, only his affirmation or oath of office requires a gathering of people Presumably that they may hear and bear witness to his irrevocable commitment to serve them well and with integrity. He is, after all, the image of South Africa and the first to remember at its mention on any global platform. Similarly, the National Assembly, and by extension Parliament, is the embodiment of centuries-old dreams and legitimate aspirations of all our people. It is the voice of all South Africans, especially the poor, the voiceless, and the least remembered. It is the watchdog of state resources, the enforcer of fiscal discipline and cost effectiveness for the common good of all of our people. It also bears the responsibility to play an oversight role over the executive and state organs and to ensure that constitutional and statutory obligations are properly executed. For this reason, it fulfils a preeminently unique role of upholding the executive of holding the executive accountable for the fulfilment of the promises made to the, people of, to the people through the State of the Nation address, budget speeches, policies, legislation, and the constitution duly undergirded by the affirmation or oath of office, constitutionally administered by the judiciary to the executive before their assumption of office. Parliament also passes legislation with due regard to the needs and concerns of the people of South Africa. The willingness and obligation to do so is reinforced by each member's irreversible public declaration of allegiance to the Republic, obedience, respect, and vindication of the Constitution and all law of the Republic to the best of her abilities. In sum, Parliament is the mouthpiece, the eyes, and the service delivery ensuring machinery of the people. It is no doubt an irreplaceable feature of clean or good governance in the Republic. Having considered all the relevant facts and principles as well as these presidential and parliamentary obligations of high importance, we are satisfied that a case has been made out for the exercise of our exclusive jurisdiction and that the DAB granted direct access to this court. Turning to the merits of this case, one of the key issues that called for clarification was the legal effect or legal status of the remedial powers of the Office of the Public Public Protector vested in it in terms of Section 182.1c of the Constitution read with the Public Protector Act this became an issue of prime importance because the attitude initially adopted by the President to these powers and by the National Assembly to date was that remedial action taken by the Public Protector does not have a legal binding effect Like other Chapter 9 institutions, the Office of the Public Protector was created to strengthen constitutional democracy in the Republic. To achieve this crucial objective, it is required to be independent and subject only to the Constitution and the law. The Constitution demands of it, as with other sister institutions, to be impartial and to exercise the powers and functions vested in it without fear, favor, or prejudice, I hasten to say that this would ordinarily be required of an institution whose powers or decisions are by constitutional design always supposed to be, I beg your pardon, I hasten to say that this would not ordinarily be required of an institution whose powers or decisions are by constitutional design always supposed to be ineffectual whether it is impartial or not would be irrelevant if the implementation of the decisions it takes is at the mercy of those against whom they are made it is also doubtful whether the fairly reasonable budget offices and staff all over the country and the time and energy expended on investigations, findings, and remedial actions taken would ever make any sense if the public protector's powers or decisions were meant to be inconsequential. The constitutional safeguards in Section 181 would also be meaningless if institutions purportedly established to strengthen our constitutional democracy lacked even the remotest possibility To do so, we learn from the sum total of sections 181 and 182 that the institution of the public protector is pivotal to the facilitation of good governance in our constitutional dispensation. In appreciation of the high sensitivity and importance of its role, regard being had to the kind of complaints, institutions, and personalities likely to be investigated, As with other Chapter 9 institutions, the Constitution guarantees the independence, impartiality, dignity, and effectiveness of this institution as indispensable requirements for the proper execution of its mandate. It is with this understanding that even the fact that the public protector was created, not by national legislation, but by the supreme law of the Republic, to strengthen our constitutional democracy that its role and powers must be understood. The office of the public protector is a new institution different from its predecessors. And only when we became a constitutional democracy did it become the public protector. That carefully selected nomenclature alone speaks volumes about the role meant to be fulfilled by the public protector. It is supposed to protect the public from any conduct in state affairs or in any sphere of government that could result in any impropriety or prejudice. The public protector is thus one of the most invaluable constitutional gifts to our nation in the fight against corruption, unlawful or undue enrichment, prejudice and impropriety in state affairs, and for the betterment of good governance. This is so because the tentacles of poverty run far wide and deep in our nation. Litigation is prohibitively expensive and therefore not an easily exercisable constitutional option for an average citizen. For this reason, the fathers and mothers of our constitution conceived of a way to give even to the poor and marginalized, a voice and teeth that could bite corruption and abuse of state power and resources excruciatingly. And that is the public protector. She is the embodiment of a biblical David that the public is who fights the most powerful and very well-resourced Goliath, that impropriety and corruption by government officials are. The Office of the Public Protector is one of the two crusaders and champions of anti-corruption and clean governance. Hairs are indeed very wide powers that leave no lever of government power above scrutiny, coincidental embarrassment in codes and censure. This is a necessary service because state resources belong to the public and as does state power. The repositories of these resources and power are to to use them on behalf and for the benefit of the public. When this is suspected or known not to be so, then the public deserves protection and that protection has been constitutionally entrusted to the public protector. In the execution of her investigative reporting or remedial powers, she is not to be inhibited or undermined. When all other essential requirements for the proper exercise of her powers are met, she is to take appropriate remedial action. Our constitutional democracy can only be truly strengthened when there is zero zero tolerance for the culture of impunity The prospects of good governance are duly enhanced by enforced accountability, the observance of the rule of law, and respect for every aspect of our Constitution as the supreme law of the Republic are real. And this would be realizable when our Chapter 9 institutions, including the public protector, are left to occupy their constitutionally allocated operational space fully for greater effect if compliance with remedial action taken were optional, then very few culprits, if any at all, would allow it to have any effect. And if it were by design never to have a binding effect, then it is incomprehensible just how the public protector could ever be effective in what she does and be able to contribute to the strengthening of our constitutional democracy. The purpose of the Office of the Public Protector is therefore to help uproot prejudice, impropriety, abuse of power, unlawful enrichment, and corruption in state affairs in all spheres of government and state-controlled institutions. Our Chapter 9 institutions, including the public protector, is a critical and indeed indispensable factor in the facilitation of good governance and in keeping our constitutional democracy strong and vibrant. Complaints are lodged with the public protector to cure incidents of impropriety, prejudice, unlawful or undue enrichment or corruption in government circles. This is done not only to observe the constitutional values and principles necessary to ensure that the efficient economic and effective use of resources is promoted, that accountability finds expression, but also that high standards of professional ethics are promoted and maintained. To achieve this requires a difference-making and responsive remedial action. Besides, one cannot really talk about remedial action unless a remedy in the true sense is provided to address a complaint in a meaningful way. The obligation to assist and protect the public protector so as to ensure her dignity and effectiveness is relevant to the enforcement of her remedial action. The public protector would arguably have no dignity and be ineffective if her directives could be ignored willy-nilly. The power to take remedial action that is so inconsequential that anybody against whom it is taken (coughs) is free to ignore or second-guess is irreconcilable with the need for an independent, impartial, and dignified public protector, and the possibility to effectively strengthen our constitutional democracy. The words, take appropriate remedial action, do point to a realistic realistic expectation that binding and enforceable remedial steps might frequently be the route open to the public protector to take. Taking appropriate remedial action connotes providing a proper, fitting, suitable, and effective remedy for whatever complaint and against whomsoever the public protector is called upon to investigate. Remedial action must, therefore, be suitable and effective. For it to be effective in addressing the investigated complaint, it often has to be binding. But... What legal effect the appropriate remedial action has in a particular case depends on the nature of the issues under investigation and the findings made. As Common Sense and Section 6 of the Public Protector Act suggest, mediation, conciliation, or negotiation may at times be the way to go. Advice considered appropriate to secure a suitable remedy might occasionally be the only real option And so might recommending litigation or a referral of the matter to the relevant public authority Or any other suitable recommendation as the case might be The legal effect of these remedial measures may simply be That those to whom they are directed are to consider them properly with due regard to their nature, context, and the language employed to determine what course to follow. When remedial action is binding, compliance is not optional. Whatever reservations the affected party might have about its fairness, appropriateness, or lawfulness. For this reason, the remedial action taken against those under investigation cannot be ignored without any legal consequences this is so because our constitutional order hinges also on the rule of law no binding and constitutionally or statutorily sourced decision may be disregarded willingly to do otherwise would amount to a license to self-help it is not open to any of us to pick and choose which of the otherwise effectual consequences of the exercise of constitutional or statutory power will be disregarded and which given heed to. A foundational value of the rule of law demands of us, as, as a law-abiding people, to obey decisions made by those clothed with the legal authority to make them, or else approach courts of law to set them aside, so we may validly escape their binding force. This is how, this is how um, we deal, it, let me rather say, it is on this, with this understanding or on this basis that we deal with the remedial action taken against the President. The remedial action that was taken against the president has a binding effect. This flows from the fact that the cattle crawl, chicken run, swimming pool, Vista center, and the amphitheater were identified by the public protector as non-security features for which the president had to reimburse the state. He was directed to first determine with the assistance of the Saps and National Treasury, the reasonable cost expended on those installations and then determine a reasonable percentage of the cost so determined that he is to pay. The President was required to provide the National Assembly with his comments and the actions he was to take on the Public Protector's Report within 14 days of receipt of that report and to reprimand the ministers involved for the misappropriation of state resources under their watch. Concrete and specific steps were therefore to be taken by the President. Features bearing no relationship to the President's security had already been identified. The President was enjoined to take definite steps to determine how much he was supposed to pay for the listed non-security features. If any investigation were to be embarked upon to determine whether some installations were non-security in nature, it was supposed to be in relation to those additional to the list of five for which some payment was certainly required. The reporting to the National Assembly and the reprimand of the affected ministers also required no further investigation does not mean that there is an absolute bar to what some see as parallel investigative process regardless of its intended end use. For it cannot be correct that upon receipt of the public protector's report with its unfavorable findings and somewhat biting remedial measures all the president was in law entitled to do or required to do was comply even if he had reason to doubt its correctness. That mechanical response is irreconcilable with logic and the rights exercisable by anybody adversely affected by any unpleasant determination. The President was, like all of us, entitled to inquire into the correctness of those aspects of the report he disagreed with that inquiry could well lead to a conclusion different from that of the public protector and such a contrary outcome is legally permissible what matters under these circumstances under these circumstances would then be how the president responds to the public protector's report and the remedial action taken when there are other dissenting reports sanctioned or commissioned by him incidentally the president mandated the Minister of Police to investigate and report on I quote whether the president is liable for any contribution in respect of the security upgrades having regard to the legislation past practices culture and findings contained in the, respect, in the respective reports those codes the National Assembly also commissioned the Minister's report. The upshot was a finding that elements of the upgrades identified by the public protector as non security features were, in fact, security features for which the President was not required to pay. Consequently, the Minister of Police exonerated in caused the President from their already determined liability. The end results of the two streams of investigative processes were mutually destructive. The President should have decided whether to comply with the Public Protector's remedial action or not. If not, then much more than his mere contentment with the correctness of the report generated at his instance, was called for a branch of government vested with a constitutional authority to resolve disputes by the application of the law should have been approached and that is the judiciary only after a court of law would have set aside the findings and the remedial action taken by the public protector would it have been open to the president to disregard the public protector's report his difficulty here is that he did not challenge the report through a judicial process. He appears to have been content with the apparent vindication of his position by the minister's re- favorable recommendations and considered himself to have been lawfully absolved of liability. This emboldened, Thus emboldened by the minister's conclusion and a subsequent resolution by the National Assembly to the same effect The President neither paid for the non-security installations, nor reprimanded the ministers involved in the Nkanda project. This non-compliance persisted until these applications were launched and the matter was set down for hearing. And this is where and how the Public Protector's Remedial Action was second-guessed, absent a court challenge to the Public Protector's Report. All the president was required to do was to comply. Arguably, he did, but only with a directive to report to the National Assembly. The president thus failed to uphold, defend, and respect the Constitution as the supreme law of the land. This failure is manifest from the substantial disregard for the remedial action taken against him by the public protector, In terms of her constitutional powers, the second respect in which he failed relates to his shared Section 181 obligations. He was duty-bound to, but did not, assist and protect the public protector so as to ensure her independence, impartiality, dignity and effectiveness by complying with her remedial action. He might have been following wrong legal advice based on the Western Cape High Court judgment that remedial action was not binding and therefore acting in good faith. But that does not detract from the illegality of his conduct, regard being had to its inconsistency with his constitutional obligations in terms of sections 182.1c and 181.3 read with 83b. As regards the National Assembly, the Public Protector submitted her report, including findings and the remedial action taken against the President, to the National Assembly for a purpose. That purpose was to ensure that the President is held accountable and his compliance with the remedial action taken is enabled. The National Assembly's attitude was that it was not required to act on or facilitate compliance with the report since the Public Protector cannot prescribe to it what to do or what not to do. For this reason, so it says, it took steps in terms of Section 423 of the Constitution after receipt of the report to ascertain and satisfy itself about the correctness of the findings and the remedial action taken by the Public Protector since more was required of the National Assembly than merely rubber stamp her report. Broadly speaking, this approach is correct because scrutinized as envisaged by Section 43(2) of the Constitution means subject to scrutiny. And scrutiny implies a careful and thorough examination or a penetrating or searching reflection. The Public Protector's Report relates to executive action or conduct and had to be subjected to scrutiny so understood. Besides, even findings (laughs) by an, an order of a court of law may themselves be legitimately and lawfully subjected to further interrogation or research at the instance of the affected party that may culminate in the conclusion that the court was wrong. But when such a conclusion is reached, the question is, how then is it acted upon? This would explain the reviews of tribunal or magistrate's court decisions and appeals from all our courts all the way up to the apex court. In principle, there is nothing wrong with wondering whether any unpleasant finding or outcome is correct and deploying all the resources at one's command to test its correctness. The National Assembly was indeed entitled to seek to satisfy itself. About the correctness of the public protector's findings and the remedial action before it could hold the president accountable in terms of its sections 42.3 and 55.2 obligations. These sections impose responsibilities so important that the National Assembly would be failing in its duty if it were to blindly or unquestioningly implement every important report that comes its way from any institution and both sections 42 3 and 55 2 do not define the strictures within which the national assembly is to operate in its endeavor to fulfill its obligations it has thus been given the leeway to determine how best to carry out its constitutional mandate additionally section 182 1b of the constitution read with section 8 B. Roman numeral 3 of the Public Protector Act does not state how exactly the National Assembly is to attend urgently to or intervene in relation to the Public Protector's Report. How to go about this is all left to the discretion of the National Assembly, but obviously in a way that does not subvert or supplant the mandate of the Public Protector. People and bodies with a substantial interest in a matter have been routinely allowed by our cause to challenge the constitutional validity of a law or conduct of the president, constitutional institutions, or parliament. The National Assembly and the president were in like manner entitled to challenge the findings and remedial action of the public protector. It would be incorrect to suggest that a mere investigation by the National Assembly into the findings of the public protector is impermissible on the basis that it trumps the findings of the public protector. Rhetorically, on what would they then base their decision to challenge the report? Certainly not an ill-considered viewpoint or a knee-jerk reaction. I touch briefly on separation of powers while still considering the National Assembly's approach to the remedial action. The executive led by the President and Parliament bear very important responsibilities and each play a crucial role in the affairs of our country. They deserve the space to discharge their constitutional obligations, unimpeded by the judiciary safe way. The constitution otherwise permits this is so because the judiciary is but one of the three branches of government it does not have unlimited powers and must always be sensitive to the need to refrain from undue interference with the functional independence of other branches of government it falls outside the parameters of judicial authority to prescribe to the national assembly how to scrutinize executive action, what mechanisms to establish and which mandate to give them for the purpose of holding the executive accountable, and fulfilling its oversight role of the executive or organs of state in general. The mechanics of how to go about fulfilling these constitutional obligations is a discretionary matter best left to the National Assembly. Ours is a much broader and less intrusive role and it is to determine whether what the National Assembly did does in substance and in reality amount to fulfillment of its constitutional obligations. That is the sum total of the constitutionally permissible judicial inquiry to be embarked (laughs) upon. And these are some of the vital limits on judicial authority, and the Constitution's constitution's design to leave certain matters to other branches of government. Courts should not interfere in the processes of other branches of government unless otherwise authorized by the Constitution. It bears repetition that it is not for this court to prescribe to Parliament what structures or measures to establish or employ respectively in order to fulfill constitutional responsibilities primarily entrusted to it. Although courts ought not to blink at the thought of asserting their authority, whenever it is constitutionally permissible to do so, at the same time and mindful of the vital strictures of their powers, they must be on high alert against impermissible encroachment on the powers of the other arms of government. Returning to the National Assembly, we observe that the public protector could not have submitted her report to the National Assembly merely because she deemed it necessary or in the public interest to do so. The high importance, sensitivity and potentially far-reaching implications of the report point but only to one conclusion. That report was a high priority matter that required the urgent attention or an intervention by the National Assembly. It ought therefore to have triggered into operation the National Assembly's constitutional obligation to scrutinize and oversee executive action and to hold the president accountable as a member of the executive. Also implicated was its obligation to give urgent attention to the report its findings and remedial action taken, and intervene appropriately in that matter. Mechanisms that were established by the National Assembly following on the Minister's report may have accorded with its power to scrutinize before it could hold accountable. What will always be important is what the National Assembly does in consequence of these interventions. The public protector, acting in terms of her constitutional and statutory powers, had already investigated the alleged impropriety or relevant executive action and concluded that the President be held liable for specific elements of the security upgrades. On a proper construction of his constitutional obligations, the National Assembly was duty-bound to hold the President accountable by facilitating and ensuring compliance with the decision of the public protector. The position would otherwise have been different had the findings and remedial action been challenged even by the National Assembly and set aside by a court, which was of course not done in this case, like the President. The National Assembly might, relying, for example, on the Western Cape High Court decision in DA versus SABC, have been genuinely led to believe that it was entitled to second-guess the remedial action through its resolution absolving the precedent of liability. But that still does not affect the unlawfulness of its preferred course of action. That said... Second guess in the findings and remedial action does not lie in the mere fact of the exculpatory reports of the Minister of Police and the last ad hoc committee. In principle, there may have been nothing wrong with those parallel processes, but there was everything wrong with the National Assembly stepping into the shoes of the public protector by passing a resolution that purported effectively to nullify the findings made and the remedial action taken by the public protector and replacing them with its own findings and remedial action in quotes. This the rule of law is dead against. It is another way of taking the law into one's hands and thus constitutes self-help. By passing that resolution, the National Assembly effectively flouted its obligations. In conclusion, neither the President nor the National Assembly was entitled to respond to the binding remedial action taken by the public protector as if it is is of no force or effect or as if it has been set aside through a proper judicial process. The ineluctable conclusion is therefore that the National Assembly's resolution based on the Minister's findings exonerating the President from liability is inconsistent with the Constitution and unlawful, turning to remedy. All parties barring the National Assembly and the Minister of Police appear to be essentially in agreement on the order that would ensure compliance with the Public Protector's remedial action. The President's ultimate draft order, following on the one circulated eight days before the hearing. Is virtually on all fours with the remedial action taken by the public protector the effect of this draft and the oral submissions by his counsel is that the president accepts that the remedial action taken against him is binding and that the National Treasury is to determine the reasonable cost of the non-security upgrades on the basis of which to determine a reasonable percentage of those costs that he must pay. The president is also willing to reprimand the ministers in line with the remedial action. The only real disagreement amongst the parties about the draft order relates to the unqualified binding effect of the public protector's remedial action and whether a declaratory order should be granted to the effect that the president breached his constitutional obligations, in terms of sections 83, 96, and 181-3 of the Constitution, and violated his oath of office. Also, that the National Assembly breached its constitutional obligations in terms of sections 55-2 and 182-1C of the Constitution. These are these are the orders cumulatively prayed for by both the EFF, and the DA. This court's power to decide and make orders in constitutional matters is set out in section 172 of the Constitution. Section 172 1 reads in relevant part, I quote, when deciding a constitutional matter within its powers, a court, A, must declare that any law or conduct that is inconsistent with the Constitution is invalid to the extent of its inconsistency and B may make any order that is just and equitable. This section also points to the language in which orders of constitutional invalidity are to be made, namely, that conduct is inconsistent with the Constitution and is invalid. And declaring law or conduct inconsistent with the Constitution and invalid is plainly an obligatory power vested in in this and other courts as borne out by the word must. Unlike the discretionary power to make a declaratory order in terms of Section 38 of the Constitution, this court has no choice but to make a declaratory order where Section 172.1a applies. Section 172 1a impels us to pronounce in its order on the inconsistency and invalidity of, in this case, the President's conduct and that of the National Assembly. This we do routinely whenever any law or conduct is held to be inconsistent with the Constitution. This declaratory order is not reserved for special cases of constitutional invalidity. Consistent with this constitutional injunction, an order will thus be made that the President's failure to comply with the remedial action taken against him by the public protector is inconsistent with his obligations to uphold, defend, and respect the Constitution as the supreme law of the Republic to comply with the remedial action taken by the public protector, and the duty to assist and protect the office of the public protector so as to ensure its independence, impartiality, dignity, and effectiveness. Similarly, the failure by the National Assembly to hold the President accountable by ensuring that he complies with the remedial action taken against him is inconsistent with its obligations to scrutinize and oversee executive action, and to maintain oversight of the exercise of executive powers by the President, and in particular, to give urgent attention to or intervene by facilitating his compliance with remedial action. In the result, we make the following order. One this court has exclusive jurisdiction to hear the application by the economic freedom fighters 2. The Democratic Alliance application for direct access is granted 3. The remedial action taken by the public protector against President Jacob Gevete-Gizazuma in terms of section 182.1c of the Constitution is binding 4. The failure by the president to comply with the remedial action taken against him by the public protector, in terms in her report, I beg your pardon, of 19 March 2014, is inconsistent with Section 83B of the Constitution, read with Sections 181(3) and 182(1C) of the Constitution, and is invalid. Five, The National Treasury must determine the reasonable costs of those measures implemented by the the Department of Public Works and the President's Ngandla Homestead that do not relate to security, namely the visitor center, the amphitheater, the cattle crawl, the chicken run, and the swimming pool only. Six, the National Treasury must determine a reasonable percentage of the cost of those measures which ought to be paid personally by the President. Seven, the National Treasury must report back to this court on the outcome of its determination within 60 days of the date of this order. Eight, the President must personally pay the amount determined by the National Treasury in terms of paragraphs 5 and 6 above within 45 days of this court's signification of its approval of the report that is the report by the National Treasury 9 the president must reprimand the ministers involved pursuant to paragraph 11.1.3 of the Public Protector's Remedial Action. 10. The resolution passed by the National Assembly absolving the President from compliance with the remedial action taken by the Public Protector in terms of Section 182.1c of the Constitution is inconsistent with Sections 42.3, 55.2a, and D and 181.3 of the Constitution is invalid and is set aside. 11. The President, the Minister of Police, and the National Assembly must pay costs of the applications, including costs of two counsel. And I hand down this judgment. Thank you, the, the court will adjourn.